We're just thrilled that you speak to us. You're not a God who's silent. You're not a God who's far away. But you speak to us through this living word. And we have the living spirit of God to speak to our hearts. And we pray that that will happen today. Thank you for what we've been able to learn through 2 Corinthians. We do want to pray too at this time for all of our dear brothers and sisters in Nepal and also for the many millions of people there who've been displaced. We're told not only to love our brothers and sisters, but to love everyone. And our love for all of those in Nepal's suffering is today to say, Lord, in your mercy, in your compassionate heart, would you provide, especially for those in isolated, difficult-to-reach villages, that somewhere, somehow, by your great goodness, aid will arrive to help those dear people. Help us to accept our responsibility as Gordon and Keith have been reminding us, and we ask, Lord, that we should do those things that would please you. We thank you now and ask you to bless your word to us. Amen. I'm just going to have a really quick overview of what we've been looking at in 2 Corinthians because we've come to the end of it now. And uh, yes, there was a broad outline which basically said chapters 1 through to 7, they were Paul and his ministry. There are some notes for today if you don't mind passing them out if you haven't got one. And then... um, We saw in chapters 8 and 9 our response to the grace of God. Then we saw in chapters uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, the challenges that were facing Paul's ministry. Well, today that's the area we're at. But let's quickly run through it. And my outline, this is what's in my head as I read 2 Corinthians through and through, that in the first two chapters, Paul was saying, because I know God... And he's the God of all comfort, the Father of mercy, the God who can even raise the dead and all those other things we learned. Because he's such a God, then I have to serve him. I have to. I have no alternative. I must live for him and serve him. Then in chapter 3, he goes on to say, we are not working under an Old Testament covenant of rules and regulations and condemnation and fading glory. We, we are ministers of a new covenant with a new message, and it's a message of life and hope and joy, and it's a message that gives us the opportunity to be righteous before God. Then in chapters 4 to 5, uh, 4 and 5, or the end of chapter 4 through 5, our motives, and he talks about the motives, and the first motive, if you remember, was eternity. We are thinking of eternity Even though these bodies of ours, they're fading away. Even though these bodies of ours are crumbling, this tent we live in, this is all transient. This is all passing away. But our focus is on eternity and the eternal things. And then he goes on to say we have a home in heaven. Then he said, and we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, but it's the love of Christ that compels us. These were the motivations in his life. And then he goes on to say in chapter 6, 7, we are working together with God. What an incredible privilege to be co-workers, to be fellow workers with God. And as you read through those chapters there, you realize that as fellow workers with God, we are first and foremost accountable servants. Then he goes on to say, we are actually like a, uh, a living temple. And then he says, but we must be a separated people. And we must be a people who cleanse themselves from everything that's evil. And then we looked at the, uh, the chapters 8 and 9. And because of the grace of our Lord Jesus, we should also show grace to others. We should also be willing to help those in need, which is really what we're being challenged to do this morning. 
And so in chapters 8 and 9 was the subject. But now in this segment, in these last segments that we've been looking at in chapters 10, 11, 12 and 13, were the challenges that Paul faced in his ministry. And we spent a lot of time. And these challenges are really significant challenges even today. The first one is the challenge of spiritual warfare. We saw that in chapter 10, that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual war. And the answer to that is to bring every thought in our minds captive to obey Christ. Then we moved on and we saw in chapter 11 that unfaithfulness to Christ. And Paul says, I am afraid, I am jealous for you. I am very jealous lest Satan seduce you and lead you away from your pure and simple devotion to Christ. He says, I want you to be completely faithful because to be unfaithful is the equivalent of spiritual immorality. And he was very strong about that. The answer, of course, as you see, is a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. But throughout the whole book, we've been faced with a constant tide of criticism and criticism of Paul as a person, criticism of Paul as an authoritative teacher of God's word. He's not truly one of the apostles. And so there were many other criticisms. He can't speak. He doesn't look really nice. I wish they wouldn't put him out the front. He's a horrible looking fellow. Well, there were all issues that were, were coming to the fore as far as Paul was concerned. Well, he says, I don't really care. I don't want to say that I'm a great preacher. I don't want to say anything. I have one grounds for boasting. I want to boast in Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the answer. Nothing about being good or bad. Jesus Christ. He is my all in all. Then we saw also that there was a challenge of these false apostles, false teachers, false teaching. And he says, these men, they come like angels. Well, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be surprised because even Satan comes as an angel of light and, he, and his servants will masquerade or they will pretend also to be good and wholesome and godly people. In fact, they are like wolves. They come in, come in amongst us. And the answer to that, of course, is to expose them and to teach the truth. And then last week, Alan was with us and he spoke about this challenge of a personal weakness that Paul said he had as a thorn in the flesh. Alan wasn't prepared to suggest what it might be. Others of us might think, well, perhaps it's his eyesight because from what we read in Galatians, maybe it was his physical appearance. We don't know. And I agree with Alan. We don't know. And if we did know, then most of us would say, well, I don't have that, so it really doesn't apply to me. But because it was a spiritual, it was a physical weakness, there was some personal weakness that he had. And yet the answer really we learned last week was this, that we need to recognize the purpose of God. In Paul's case, he said, well, I've understood that God doesn't want me to be proud of what I've experienced and what I've seen and where I've been and what I've done. He says, it's to keep me from being too elated. That was the purpose of God. The second idea is to recognize the resources. And this is what Alan was sharing with us. My grace is sufficient for you, God had said to him. My strength, God says, is made perfect when you're weak. You see it best when you're weak. When you think you can do it, then that's when the problems arise. But when you think you're weak and see that you're weak and you can't do it, then that's when God's grace and God's strength becomes very evident. And I like what Paul says in in Philippians. He said, this, 
And the word this included his imprisonment, it included his illnesses, it included all the nasty things that had happened to him. This is for my salvation, he says. This has made me a better person. This is for me. And I think that's a beautiful thing to see. Well, we're moving on, and I'm asking you to read with me. I'm going back to chapter 12, verse 14. Alan finished at verse 13 last week. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions. I want you. So I will gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more... Will you love me less? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. But I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. So that's a really sad thing that's in Paul's mind because we've got a challenge here. And what we read on is this, God is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Today, our subject is a bit difficult. Bear with me. But it's a reality. This is the challenge of people who are nominal believers in the church. People who say they're believers, present as believers, have always said they're believers, but in actual fact are not true believers in Christ at all. I remember going to India. Some of you heard me talk about going to a village in India When I went there, they told me they're having a baptismal service, and I was thrilled to hear that. So I said, this is lovely. Who's being baptized? Oh, some of our young people. Oh, wonderful. And when were they born again? What do you mean, when were they born again? They're our children. We're baptizing them. But but why? I couldn't understand it. And ultimately, I asked them again. Why? Are you baptizing them unless they're believing in Jesus? They're our children. We have to baptize them because they want to get married. And we have a rule in our churches that unless someone's baptized, we can't marry them. Now, I was really struggled because these people were fifth, fifth generation so-called believers. Churches that were fifth generation Their grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents had converted from Hinduism to Christianity and their baptism was a very meaningful thing. But moving down the line, their baptism now meant really it was simply a 
it was simply a, what can I say, a performance in their case. It was a key to the next step in their life of being able to get married. Then I was in Romania. And I was teaching and preaching from Ephesians. And in the front, I noticed a gentleman sitting there. And I later learned that he was one of the, 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 the priests in the local Orthodox Church. And when I was speaking from Ephesians, I talked about being believing in, a believer in Jesus and what Paul talks about uh, of us believing in him and coming to a personal knowledge of faith in him. And this man came up to me afterwards and chided me very strongly. He said, this is not the message for Romania. We are Romanians. We are believers. We are Christians by birth. Well, no one's a Christian by birth. And in churches today, it is very possible, even in our church here, that some of us have grown up within our families knowing everything. I did. I knew everything. I used to get first class, first prize at our Sunday school anniversaries. I've got some books at home to prove it. I used to get first class. I memorized many portions of scripture. And yes, my mother told me that I accepted Jesus when I was a very small child. I don't remember that, but she said I did. But it was not until I was around 12 or 13 that I had a very personal, deep conviction of sin. And the issue was not that I was a believer. The issue was that Jesus Christ was not the Lord of my life. And I had to come to that understanding, even though I grew up within the, the whole heart of a Christian community and a Christian church, and I knew all the answers, and I could have told you many of the things that the preachers were about to preach about but I didn't know Jesus as the Lord of my life. And that becomes a big problem in our Christian community in a country like ours. And so that's what Paul is worried about. He's looking at a church, and when he looks back over his first letter to them and now this second letter to them, what he sees is this, that the Lord Jesus had already warned about it. He said, by their fruit you will recognize those who are true. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So here is Jesus making a clear distinction between those who are truly believing and those who are claiming to be believers. Lord, Lord, we've done this. We taught Sunday school. Lord, Lord, we, we did this. We did that. We, did, we helped in kids. We did so many things in your name. I never knew you. He used a parable to describe the same circumstance. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. That's lovely. That's the word we understand. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the, the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. It's true that in God's work, Satan will do whatever he can to dilute it, to pervert it, to seduce it, and to have people claiming to be Christians, claiming to be believers, claiming to know Jesus. But in fact, it's not true. It's not real. It's not what God says. It is possible 
that in a church there should be some who claim they've never truly repented and they've never truly believed. And as Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll know. Well, Paul looked at the church at Corinth and what he saw was this. He saw that there was clear evidence of continuing sin. Yet John writes in his letter, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So this problem of continuing sin is the fruit that shows us that someone is not truly a believer. And when Paul looks back over the Corinthian church, he says, I think I'll find when I come quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. The Bible tells us that every one of those things is the fruit or the result of our sinful nature. The works of the flesh are these things. They're not of God. Nothing there is of the, of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit you know very well. And it's all pure. And it's all really a description of the character of Jesus. All the fruit of the Spirit. And so there's a grave danger for many of us, and especially young people, to grow up within a Christian community. And even someone who comes in from outside a Christian community and says, I believe in Jesus. But in fact, they had never, never truly repented. There was clear evidence that this was true. Paul says, and we read there a little earlier, many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual sin, the debauchery in which they have in God. These, these people were continuing within the church and were singing the hymns and praising God and no doubt could be involved in some of the activities, but they had never truly repented. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about nominal believers. We need to truly understand that this is a, an extremely serious challenge to God's work. Well, the answer, as Keith read for us a little earlier, was this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Well, I began to think across Scripture, and I found some of the very clear tests. My grandson was telling me he had just done a test, and he had to do a test on anatomy or something or another, and there were multiple choice questions and there were some descriptive stuff and well maybe that's the new way of examining yourself in terms of what you know about anatomy but when you come to God's word there's no multiple choice questions it's a very clear yes or it's a very clear no and they require an answer so I'm going to ask us, put ourselves to the test. That's what Paul says. Examine yourselves, brothers, sisters, young people, children. Put yourself to the test. Yes or no. And the first one is, have you truly repented? Jesus said, unless you repent, 
you too will perish. Peter, when he was preaching, said, Repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. What does repentance mean? Well, I've suggested to you on previous occasions that repentance, true repentance, is not just feeling sorry for your sin. It's not just saying, I'm sorry I did it. It's not just that. True repentance is to, to reverse the decision that Adam made to live in rebellion and disobedience toward God. True repentance is to completely turn around and in utter submission to God and in obedience to him, acknowledge him as your Lord and Master. The, the Thessalonian believers turned to God from idols Idols had been the dominant thing in their lives, the controlling thing in their lives, what they did. But when they heard the message of Christ and the message of the gospel, they forsook their idolatry, they turned their back on it, and they then began to serve the living God. I've said that so many times. But it's true. Repentance. So yes or no? Yes or no? That's the only answers. For all of us. The second one is, have you been born again? Jesus said it. I assure you, I tell you, the old Bible says, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, unless you are born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. Never see the kingdom of God. Yes or no? Have you been born again? Do you have eternal life? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then John writes this, this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has God's Son has life. Whoever does not have his Son does not have life. Do you have eternal life? Yes or no? Do you have continuing sin? Now, this is a strong test. John wrote these words. We read it before. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. He writes a little later in verse 9, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. So, I have to ask you, yes or no? Do you have continuing sin? Put yourself to the test. The next test, is Christ in you. That was the test that Paul mentioned. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? In John 14, Jesus said, When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And as we sang a moment ago, Paul quoted these verses in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. It is Christ who lives in me. 
Friends, I have to ask, is Christ in you, yes or no? No buts, maybes, multiple choice, yes or no? Do you have the Holy Spirit living within you? Paul wrote to the Romans, you are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them, in them are not Christians at all, says the New Living Translation. Since Christ lives within you, your spirit is alive because you have been made right with God. Do you have the Holy Spirit controlling you? Do, does the Holy Spirit dictate to you what and where and how and why? You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living within you. Do you? Yes or no? Yes or no? Do you obey his commands? How can we be sure, John wrote, that we belong to him? Well, simple, by obeying his commandments. If someone says, I belong to God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, then that person I'm sorry to say, is a liar and does not live in the truth. But those who obey God's word really do love him. That is the way we know whether or not we live in him. So do we obey his commands? And for us here in our church, one of the commands we think the believers should obey is the command of baptism. So do you need to take that step? Have you declared, I have decided to follow Jesus? And you indicate that in your public baptism. Yes or no, do you obey his commands? And this one is the challenge for us this morning. Do you love other Christians? Do you love other Christians? The one that's in Nepal, the ones in India, the ones among our Aboriginal friends? Do you love other Christians? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Now this is not an issue, again a multiple choice question. This is simply a clear-cut question. Do you love with that selfless love of Christ, the selfless love of God? Do you love other Christians? Paul says, if you fail, maybe you fail. And again, I have to ask you, do you fail? Do you fail the test? Any one of those would be a fail mark. It's based on really clear indicators. The indicators of this. All who believe in God's Son have eternal life. That believing in God's Son requires repentance, being born again, and all those other things that we looked at there. Every one of them. 
That's what it means to believe in God's Son. And we then have eternal life. But look at this. The scripture says in John 3.36, those who don't obey the Son will never experience eternal life. But the wrath of God remains upon them. Sadly, that's not a subject we like talking about, the wrath of God. But it's a reality. And what does the wrath of God mean in reality? Well, Paul had to write to the Thessalonians, and this is what he said. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels... He will punish those who... Mur- no, it doesn't say that. He will punish all... No, it doesn't say adulterers. It doesn't say liars. It doesn't say terrorists. It doesn't say wicked criminals, criminals, drug runners or whoever. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that punishment means this. They will be punished. I I find it difficult to say. With everlasting destruction. That's what the Bible says. Everlasting destruction. And they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And from the majesty of his power. The wrath of God. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so to fail that test leaves us under the wrath of God. Remember what, it read, what we read earlier? Remains upon them. The wrath of God remains upon them. It's already there. So if you fail, friends... You're in a perilous situation. Young people, if you fail this test, then it's a dreadful thing for you to understand that God's wrath. We talk so much about his love. We talk so much about his mercy. We talk so much about his grace. We don't talk enough, I think, about his holiness, righteousness, and his wrath. But we need to. Today we are. And today I'm asking you, examine yourselves. Paul is asking us. The scriptures are asking us. The Spirit of God is asking us. Examine yourself to see whether Christ is in you, lest you fail to meet the test. But for those of us who say yes by God's grace, by God's mercy, I can say yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Then Paul says this. We are workers together with God. That's been the whole theme of 2 Corinthians. We are workers together and our authority is to build people up, not to knock them down. Our authority is to help people become like Jesus. Our authority is to take the the gospel to the world and make disciples and then teach them to obey and bring them into the, the kingdom of God. And as workers together with God, 
Every one of us as true believers who've truly repented, who know that Christ is within us, we are able to absolutely rely on these wonderful resources, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the love of God and we have the fellowship, the partnership of the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. And this is the great joy we have. This isn't easy for me to say, but this is 2 Corinthians. And this is how 2 Corinthians ends, with a clear instruction that we need to examine ourselves. Now, maybe some of you are like me. You grew up and are growing up within Christian families, but there has never been the time when you have truly, truly repented, truly turned your life over. Christ is not truly the Lord of your life. Well, I'm going to ask us if we could sing that old favorite. We're going to remain seated and sing, Just as I am, without one plea. 390 it is, yeah. 396. But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. You know, you could do that. You can do that. You can be born again. You can truly repent right now, today. You can truly come to this understanding that you are a person who can truly say, Christ lives in me. If you could pray this prayer as we sing this song, just as I am without one. Let's remain seated and prayerfully sing this.
we're not a kind of church that asks for emotional things. And, but if you've never come before and you'd like to speak with one of the elders, do so. Ladies, if you'd like to speak to Helen, I'm sure she'd love to help you. Young people, you speak to your parents. You tell them, I want to know that Jesus lives within. The Bible says, to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. That's the people who believe in his name. And to believe in his name requires that you make that decision to turn around completely in utter repentance. There will be sorrow for your sin, don't worry. But it's a very clear decision that you make under God's Spirit's control to turn from independence from God to surrender to God. And if you've never done that, then today's the day. Today's the day. That prayer is a very real prayer. Let me close now. Father, we just thank you that Paul, looking at the church at Corinth, seeing the situation there and understanding that there were those issues still to be resolved and he could see that there would still be quarreling and jealousy and there would be factions and there was prejudice and there was arrogance and all of the very things that are the clear evidence that the Spirit of God was not in control. And then as he saw some who were continuing in all the grossest of kinds of sins, knowing, and he could clearly see they had never truly repented. And his word to them was, you need to examine yourself. And today, that's the word that's come to us. We needed to examine ourselves we took, before we took the bread and the wine. But now we're being asked to examine ourselves to see whether Jesus Christ is truly within us. Lord, we pray that each of us should be fully assured that we should have the witness of the Spirit within us that truly we are the children of God. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the joy of being together. We pray again for our brothers and sisters who are going through these difficult days in Nepal, in India and elsewhere. And we ask for your grace for them. And now for each of us, may the grace of our Lord Jesus be poured out upon us. Let the love of God so fill us that it flows out from within us to touch every person with whom we have contact. And let every one of us know the controlling power, controlling work of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives and every day until Jesus comes. And we thank you for our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, from that position, let me tell you, there's morning tea on the deck outside and we trust you can stay and enjoy a time of fellowship.